Welcome to the audio presentation of The Andean Cosmovision, Episode 5, Delving More Deeply into Intent, Aini, and Salka. Hi, I'm Oakley Gordon. I introduced the concepts of intent, Aini, and Salka in earlier episodes of the podcast. I would like to now go into them in more detail. I hope that this will be of service to you, both in doing the Andean Meditations and in integrating the Andean Cosmovision with our Western worldview. It is from my efforts for many years in those directions that the thoughts I'm about to share have emerged. Intent. I will begin with a deeper look at intent. Note that I'm using the term here not as it is found in the dictionary, but as it is used in describing the Andean Cosmovision. I have divided this topic into three sections, Intent as the doorway into the sacred, intent as controlled abandon, and intent as the breath of the cosmos. Intent as the doorway into the sacred. The simplest way of thinking about intent, what I call the training wheel version, is to define intent simply as sincere pretending. That is all you need to get an effect from the meditations. Just sincerely pretend to do the various steps, and that is enough. I would like to now elaborate on that a bit. It is my experience that the Indian meditations get me in touch with the sacred. When I speak of the sacred, I'm not speaking of religion. For me, the two are far from being the same thing. Joseph Campbell, the great comparative mythologist, wrote a book about the role of masks in ancient ceremonies. His book is titled, The Masks of God primitive mythology. He was interested in the experiences of people who participated in sacred rituals, where a performer wore a mask that portrayed her or him as a deity. The people at the ceremony usually knew the identity of the person wearing the mask. It may have been, for example, their Uncle Charlie. So what did they believe about the person when he was wearing the mask in the ceremony? Did they believe that in the ceremony the mask actually transformed him into the deity? Or do they see him as representing the deity in a metaphorical sort of way? Campbell argued that the people at these ceremonies didn't take either perspective. Those who believe that the mask actually transforms the person into a deity, the true believers, and this would include anyone who believes that their religion is literally true, do not belong at the ceremony. On the other hand, the spoil sports, the skeptics, for whom the mask has no power to transform its wearer into a deity, for whom the ritual must, at best, represent a metaphorical transformation, are also not invited. According to Campbell, the statues of guardians, warriors, dragons, demons, that flank the entranceways into the ancient ceremonial sites, are there to keep out what today we might call the religious mind as well as the scientific mind. Campbell believed that the people at these ancient ceremonies took a third option, Experiencing the ritual is neither literally true nor essentially metaphorical, immersing themselves instead in the realm of what Campbell calls as if. Experiencing the ritual as if the person had become a god. Campbell's realm of as if sounds an awful lot to me like the realm of intent. The anthropologist Gregory Bateson had something similar to say. In addition to being an anthropologist, Bateson was also one of the founders of modern systems theory, 
and one of the first and most influential theorists to apply systems theory to the behavioral and social sciences. The sacred is a topic whose importance most scientists discount, or they at least fear to tread in the topic of the sacred. Bateson, however, strode right into it. In his books, Sacred Unity, Further Steps to an Ecology of Mind, and in the book he co-authored with his daughter, Angel's Fear, Towards an Epistemology of the Sacred. Here's one of the things Bateson had to say about the sacred. Quote, in the 1500s, in Europe, many Catholics and Protestants were burning each other at the stake, or were willing to be burned, rather than compromise about the nature of the bread and wine used in the Mass. The Catholics said that the bread is the body of Christ, and the wine is the blood. The Protestants said, on the other hand, that the bread stands for the body of Christ, and the wine stands for the blood. The point is not to say that one side is better than the other, but that the argument is one of fundamental importance in understanding the nature of the sacred and human nature. Now it is my suspicion that the richest use of the word sacred is that use which will say that what matters is the combination of the two, getting the two together, and that any fracturing of the two is anti-sacred. The Catholics and the Protestants were equally anti-sacred. The bread both is and stands for the body. End quote. Bateson goes on to say that the path to the sacred involves leaving what he labels prose thinking, and that I call the intellect, and entering into dream thinking. In dreams, our experiences are not labeled as true or false, factual or metaphorical. They simply are. This takes us back to the story of Wyeth Swan that I recounted in the first podcast episode. When we attend a ballet, or a view in reverie a beautiful sunset, or look in ineffable wonder for the first time into the eyes of our newborn child, truth and falsity are irrelevant. This is the state of intent. Intent, as sincere pretending, empowers the Andean meditations to serve as a path into the sacred. I like now to look at both pieces of sincere pretending. Pretending moves us out of the realm of the intellect, out of the world of both the scientist and the true believer. When we are pretending, we are being neither skeptical or gullible. We are just having an experience. In sincerity, well, what does it mean to be sincere? I think it is important that we may wonder whether or not a person is being sincere, but it doesn't make sense to wonder if a computer is being sincere. I believe this is because sincerity moves us out of the realm of the intellect and into the realm of the heart. There have been times over the years when the Andean meditations have stopped having an effect for me, when the path into the Andean cosmovision has become lifeless, and I no longer feel that it is giving me that beautiful sense of living a meaningful existence. When this has happened, I have realized that I have stopped sincerely pretending. I have either stopped being sincere when doing the meditations, and have started to just mechanically go through the steps, or have lost the pretending part, and have started to take the whole path too seriously, and have moved into the realm of the true believer, at which point the scientist part of me jumps in full of skepticism, demanding proof of the various concepts within the ending cosmovision, and not finding it. When this happens, I go back to sincere pretending, sincerely doing the meditations rather than doing them mechanically, and pretending. For there is one aspect of my being on this path that my intellect does know is true. 
from repeated experience. That sincerely pretending to do the meditations evokes effects on me that are beautiful and that I value deeply. Sincere pretending is the only grasp of intent that we need to wander down the path into the ending cosmovision, and so, practically speaking, it is the most important understanding of intent. But intent is so fascinating, and over the years I've come to some other understandings of it as well. Intent as controlled abandon. One day, an Andean woman takes her baby with her as she goes down to the river to wash her family's clothes. Reaching the river, she places the baby, swaddled in a cloth, on a rock while she begins to wash the clothing. Suddenly, the baby rolls off the rock and into the river. Without pausing to think, the mother dives into the river and saves her baby. This is also intent. This brings us to the distinction between intention and intent. Not a dictionary distinction, but a useful distinction to make to understand the role of intent in our travels down the path into the Andean Cosmovision. An intention to do something is a thought that we will likely do it. It is our plan to do it. But then, of course, while it is our intention to do it, something might arise that takes precedence. This is not intent. In my sophomore year of college, I went to a party with my friend. Now, my friend, it should be noted, could be really obnoxious at times. At the party, he was so rude to a woman that she threw a glass Coke bottle at him. Without thinking, in a slow motion, I reached out and caught the bottle an inch from his face. That was intent. As a young college professor, I attended a workshop by John Grinder, a professor of psycholinguistics, who was a colleague of and influenced by Gregory Bateson. This workshop, by the way, led through a story with twists and turns to my meeting Don Americo Yabar many years later, my mentor in my exploration of the Andean Cosmovision. But that is a story to be told at another time. Back to the workshop. At the end of each day, Grinder had us all come together in a meeting with a drummer from the Congo who taught us African dancing. On the last day of the workshop, we all stood in a circle while he and his friends played the drums. One by one, we stepped into the center of the circle to dance to the African music. When it was my turn, my mind turned off. My ego disappeared. I had no self-evaluation going on. No internal dialogue about what others might be thinking of my dancing. Occasionally, my mind would flash back on and notice how amazingly I was dancing and then go away again. I realized afterwards that I had been dancing with intent in the form of controlled abandon. This, by the way, was the reason Grinder had this be part of the workshop, for the workshop was about the quality of the relationship between our conscious and unconscious minds. Intent, then, can be thought of as controlled abandon. And that gets us to the very interesting, at least to me, question of, in controlled abandoned, what is abandoned and where does the control come from? What is abandoned in intent, in controlled abandon, is having our intellect control our behavior. I define our intellect as the part of our mind that thinks with words and symbols. Our ego, the set of all concepts and beliefs we have about ourselves, is part of the intellect. When we act with intent, we step out of that world of thoughts. Our behavior at that point, however, is not random. Something else other than our intellect is controlling our behavior. But who or what? If we abandon having the ego-centered, self-reflecting intellect control our behavior, 
than what is left. Our behavior is still controlled. It is not random. The mother goes after her child. I reach out and grab the Coke bottle. I dance. But who is controlling us at that moment? The psychological view is that it is our unconscious. Our unconscious mind does indeed exist and drives much of our experience. But with a little bit of examination, it is clear that this is not the case in this context. The mother is conscious of what is going on while she dives into the river. It was just a consciousness without thoughts. I was conscious of the Coke bottle moving towards my friend's face, but I did not contemplate what should be done about it. I was conscious of dancing to the African music, but without self-reflection and evaluation of how I was doing. In the Western worldview, we tend to equate consciousness with our intellect, perhaps because we spend so much of our conscious time engaged in internal dialogue, which is an intellectual pursuit. It makes more sense to say that with intent, with controlled abandon, we move into an alternative state of consciousness. We are still conscious, but without thinking. And we can go even deeper with this idea. Intent as the breath of the cosmos. The predominant view in the Western worldview concerning our existence as human beings is that we are separate, independent objects, existing for a short time in a universe of objects. It is assumed that our existence stops at our skin, and that all aspects of our mind, including our conscious and unconscious minds, reside purely within us. In this view, we are like billiard balls on a cosmic pool table, completely separate from the other billiard balls, and everything about us, that is us, is contained within the limits of our sphere. If we harken back, however, to episode one of this podcast, to what I refer to as the scaffolding concepts of the Andean Cosmovision, we find a very different view of both our existence and of the cosmos. There, the cosmos was viewed as consisting of a vast network of energetic filaments, and where the filaments come together to form a bundle or a node is what we experience as an object. In this view, everything is connected. There are no separate objects. Again, in this view, you and I are nodes in the network of filaments. While we are distinct nodes, we are also an inseparable part of the larger cosmos. If we could somehow take a knife and cut off all the filaments that lead into our existence, then we would be the us that we find in the Western worldview. As far as I know, that would be impossible. But it certainly can be done psychologically through our beliefs and concepts of reality, and particularly through our ego, the set of beliefs and concepts we have about ourselves. Our belief system can inform our experience of our existence in such a way that our experience is that we are completely independent and separate objects through the worldview given to us by our society. I offer the filamental description as an alternative way of considering our existence, and I offer it not as a fact, but as an alternative metaphor. With metaphors, we understand one thing, in this case our existence, which I propose is ultimately incomprehensible, by thinking about it in terms of something that we can understand, that we are billiard balls, or that we are nodes in a cosmic network of filaments. There are other metaphors I like that express our inherent and continual connection to the larger cosmos. My favorite is that when we become beings, we emerge from the cosmos, and that this is not just a one-time-at-birth sort of thing where we emerge and break off like a bubble to float away in an independent existence. 
but instead that we emerge in such a way that we stay connected to the cosmos. It is as if there is a wellspring in the center of our being, that the flow of this wellspring into our being is our existence. And if we were to dive down into the spring, we would arrive at its source, the cosmos. A similar metaphor that I value is that we are like whirlpools in the cosmic consciousness. It is my experience when meditating that the more I connect with nature and the cosmos, the deeper within myself I go. And the more I go inside myself, the more expansive I seem to be. This, I believe, is what Joseph Campbell was getting at when he wrote the book, The Inner Reaches of Outer Space. It also reminds me of the book Little Big by John Crawley, where the further in the characters go, the bigger reality becomes. I have this sense that as I go deeper and deeper within myself, I approach the cosmos. Don America has described moments when it seems to him that he is the flute and the cosmos is the breath. I suspect that at times when we let our ego dissolve and have opened our consciousness to the cosmos, that our actions flow out through us from the cosmos and that this is the deepest understanding of intent. Now I'd like to turn to the topic of Aini. Aini, spelled A-Y-N-I, is such a fundamental aspect of the Indian Cosmovision. The essence of Aini is reciprocity. That is, when you receive something, you give something in return. And when you give something, you receive something in return. This keeps balance in the relationship. But it also does more than that. It nourishes the relationship as well. It is not a matter of breaking even in an exchange. It is instead like a spiral, where the cycle of giving and receiving elevates both parties and continues to elevate as the cycle is repeated. Let us begin by looking at Aini in the context of the Andean people and their relationships with each other. Aini shows up clearly in the work that the people in the community perform together. When it is time to work a family's field, the men and women in the community unite to work it as a community. The sowing of a field, for example, involves a line of men working foot plows to overturn the soil, followed by a line of women who plant the seeds. These relative roles of the sexes reflect important aspects of the cosmovision. When such communal work is completed, the recipients rarely express thanks, for it is just part of life that they will then establish balance by working their neighbor's fields in turn. When you give, you receive, and when you receive, you give. Balance is maintained. Both sides are nourished, and the community is healthy. Aini is like a pump at the heart of Andean life. It maintains a flow of energy throughout the community. I would like to share some of my own experiences with Aini from the perspective of a Westerner entering into a relationship with the Andean people. My trips to Peru involve working with various Pacos, Andean mystics, and healers, and this working with often involves my participation in the ceremonies and healing rituals that they provide. What I can give them in return to balance our relationship, what they really need, that I have, is money. At the beginning of my exploration of the Indian Cosmovision, I felt uncomfortable giving money in reciprocity. From my Western perspective, it just didn't seem right to give money in exchange for a sacred experience. For one thing, giving money as a present in our society is often seen as involving less heart than a real present. 
For another thing, our culture has some strong views about the relationship between the sacred and the secular, and how when the two are mixed in the wrong way, then what should be sacred becomes profane instead. What comes to my mind as examples are the practice of religion selling forgiveness and millionaire televangelists asking people to show their humbleness and love for God by sending them money. While Aini can take the form of money, however, Aini is not the same thing as payment. Aini brings people closer together. The goal is balance rather than gain, mutual support rather than advantage. When I was able to shift from my culture's viewpoint to the Indian Cosmovision, I was able to enter into the true Aini of the relationship I was nourishing with the Andean Pacos and healers. On their side, they were willing to do the same, to interact with me and Aini within the context of the ceremony, rather than slipping into the Western capitalistic relationship with money that is encroaching into their culture. When, as part of the ceremony, I give them money as Aini, it still feels beautiful, touching, and sacred. Once the ceremony is over, however, then the context does shift. The sense of the sacred evaporates as they pull out their goods for sale and haggling begins. The two ways of being in relationship, one of Aini within the context of the sacred and one of sales within the context of commerce, could not be more different. I would like to share another example of how Aini works in Peru. This specific instance occurred in one of my earlier trips. I had brought along some extra money to give to the people of Peru. Not a lot, but it doesn't take much to help somebody who lives in the high Andes. The challenge was to find a context in which I could give the money as Aini, rather than as charity from a comparatively rich Westerner to needy indigenous people, which is a much different relationship, and not Aini at all. Don Americo helped me with this. He is a maestro at shaping my well-intentioned efforts into something more beautiful than I anticipated. In this case, we were in a very small village high in the Andes. This location was probably important to our success, as there the people still lived a life governed by Aini. I was introduced, one at a time, to several people whom Americo knew could use some help. First, I was introduced to a middle-aged man who was suffering from severe diarrhea. He asked if I had anything to help. Well, being a well-prepared Westerner, of course I had something to help. I had brought along medication for diarrhea. I gave him some of it with instructions on how to take it. He thanked me most sincerely. A few minutes later, he returned and gave me three eggs from his hands. I had completely forgotten about the Aini part of this. I was touched, and we both were pretty happy with our interaction. Then I was introduced to two young girls who were orphans. Most of the people's needs are met by their family, and those who don't have a family, such as orphans and some elderly people, have a hard time getting by. The girls were friendly and shy. They needed some money for school supplies, which I was happy to provide. With big smiles, they each gave me a hug. Then one ran out and returned with a belt she had made and gave it to me as a present. The next in line was a representative from the village Club of Mothers. The Club of Mothers meet once a week to pursue activities for the benefit of the children in the village. They work a plot of land that Americo donated to them, and they give the food they raise to the children. And they also work on weavings they sell at the market to buy things the children need. I gave her most of what money I had left, and after thanking me, she returned and presented me with a live chicken. I thought about writing my sons to let them know I was bringing home a sister, but we ended up eating the chicken that night instead.
At the end of the day, I was introduced to a very old woman. Donna Miracle thought she was more than 100 years old, whose family were all gone. I gave her the rest of the money I had. When I did, she grasped both my hands with her aged hands and looked into my eyes with a gentle smile and said something to me in Quechua, which Americo then translated for me. She had said that she had nothing she could give me, so she would pray for me that night in her dreams. I couldn't imagine getting anything nicer than that. That is what Aini is like. Aini informs the Indian people's relationships with each other, and in that context it can be easily understood. It is when the Andean people apply Aini to their relationship with nature and the cosmos that we move into mysterious territory and begin to glimpse the profound beauty of their cosmovision. To understand how Aini works in this context, we first need to understand a very different view of nature and the cosmos. It is not possible to have a true relationship with inert, mindless matter. In the Western world view of reality, that is how rivers and stones and trees and the cosmos itself are basically seen. Within our Western worldview, we can love a forest or the earth, but it is hard to conceive of them loving us back. As I described in episode one of this podcast, the ending people have a very different experience of reality, where everything in the cosmos is interconnected and everything is conscious. This way of experiencing reality allows a true not just a metaphorical relationship between humans and nature and the cosmos. And Aini is fundamentally about relationships. In the Andean Cosmovision, we can have a beautiful relationship with Pachamama, the great being who is our mother, the planet Earth, with the Apus, the great beings who are the majestic mountain peaks, with the rivers and the trees and the stars, and with Mamatuta, the void. Mother Night, who holds the stars in her embrace, and with other beings as well. In the Indian Cosmovision, humans are not distinct from nature, nor is nature distinct from the cosmos. The role of humans is not to use nature for our own good, nor to serve as stewards over nature, but instead to interact with nature and the cosmos in an interplay of respect and mutual support recognizing that we humans are but part of the fabric of life, not its apex. We are children of Pachamama, but not her special children. The Andean meditations can have a very nice effect on our energy. I have found, however, that the deepest effects of the meditations come not from the meditations themselves, but from the relationships they help us to form with nature and the cosmos. And the organizing aspect of the relationship is Aini. We can receive so much from nature and from the cosmos through the meditations. To complete the circle of Aini, we can give simple offerings of gratitude to nature and the cosmos. Simple offerings have become an ever-present part of my Indian meditative practice. At first, I offered them mainly because I had an intellectual understanding that Aini is a fundamental principle of the Indian cosmovision. As I entered more fully into the Indian Cosmovision, however, I began to have moments of being overcome with appreciation of living in a conscious cosmos, a cosmos where the Pachamama accepts our hucha from us, where the cosmos gives us refined energy to replace the hucha, and where all the facets of nature and the cosmos are available 
to help support our personal and interpersonal transformations. My offerings eventually became a matter of delight. I always bring a little alcohol with me when I go into the canyons to meditate. After clearing Mahucha, I pour a few drops onto the Pachamama with the intent that it convey my gratitude to her. If I am sitting next to a creek, I give a little to the creek with the same intent, and I spew a little into the sky for the Apus. These acts are my heartfelt way of nourishing my relationship with nature and the cosmos. Now, it's important to me that you understand the underlying nature of such an offering. The offering is not the material component of a spell to control nature, nor is it a bribe or payment to nature for services rendered. Giving an offering is like giving flowers to a loved one. It is an act that celebrates and elevates a loving relationship. It is, in essence, an energetic act, giving energy in the form of love as part of the circle of Aini. The beauty of Aini is that, unlike giving a store money in exchange for a fishing rod, it leaves both parties feeling like they have more energy than when they started. This extra energy arises from the nature of the relationship. It is like a spiral where every completion of the circle of Aini lifts both parties a little higher. Occasionally, I like to offer a more elaborate offering, and this takes a little bit of preparation. I base these offerings on a few of the elements I have seen go into the very elaborate and beautiful offerings called despachos, made by the Pacos in Peru. For an offering to the Pachamama, I bring three red flowers and three white flowers. Red and white flowers are an important part of almost all the Andean despachos. Red flowers represent blood, the Pachamama, the feminine. White flowers represent masculine energy, the snow on the Apus, and the stars. I also add three sugar cubes, or three pieces of candy, for the Pachamama. Once, when I was in Peru, a Ketterol woman was describing to me the significance of the various elements she was adding to her despacho. She placed some candy into the despacho and explained that the Pachamama has a sweet tooth. Americo, who was translating for us, grinned and added that this might be a projection. Still, candy or sweets are a nice touch for an offering to the Pachamama. To complete the offering for the Pachamama, I dig a small hole into the earth. In the Andes, a despacho would be wrapped in a large sheet of paper and tied with a string before burying, but I usually skip the paper for Western reasons, so that it will be less to biodegrade. Before putting the flowers into the ground, I hold them to my lips and gently blow on them three times, with the intent of connecting my filaments to the flowers and imbuing them with the very finest of my energy. I then gently place the sugar cubes and the flowers into the hole and pour a little alcohol on them while holding the intent of expressing my gratitude to the Pachamama for all that she gives us. Finally, I fill in the dirt on top of the offering and gently press it down with my hands. With my intent, I send the energy of the offering to Pachamama in gratitude. For the creek that flows past my meditation spot, I bring three red and three white flowers. Gently blow on them three times to imbue them with my filaments and the very finest of my energy, and then I cast the flowers into the flowing water. I follow this with a little alcohol, again with the intent of expressing my gratitude to my brother, the creek, for the beauty that he brings to my life, and for what he gives me when I meditate with him. For the Apus, the great beings who are the majestic mountain peaks, I use the same elements as I do for an offering to the Pachamama, but I bury the offering in the slopes of the Apu. 
If I'm not actually at the apu, I put the elements in a piece of paper tied with a string, which I then place in the fire. As it burns, I use my intent to send the energy of the offering to the apu. Sometimes I want to do something really special. The last time I made an offering for an apu, for example, I added cotton fluff to represent the clouds, a small hummingbird figure, for hummingbirds are the messengers of the apus, a small piece of silver accompanied by an apology for the silver mining that had occurred in the past in the apu, a small rainbow bead to represent the rainbow that connects the apu to Pachamama, a yellow flower to represent Tai Tai Inti, the sun, and so on. The despachos made in the Andes are quite elaborate and are built around a specific intent that may go beyond expressing gratitude. Simple offerings of gratitude, such as the ones I have described, have no set formula and are called hiwariskas. Well, perhaps they do have a formula, which is simply to follow your heart in the creation of the hiwariska, and to be sure to include the intent of expressing your gratitude. The most beautiful hiwariska I have been part of occurred during a Don America workshop held in Hawaii. He asked us to all gather three red flowers and three white flowers. We then drove partway up the slope of a volcano. There, on the breast of Pachamama, we laid down our flowers and with our intent expressed our gratitude. It had been cloudy all day, but when we were finished with the Hiwariska, a single shaft of sunlight pierced through the clouds and illuminated our offering in great beauty. It doesn't get much better than that. Irony is about relationship. You may know that true magic can arise in our relationship with others. This is basic systems theory stuff, where emergent properties arise within the system, such as a relationship, and the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. In a relationship, phenomena arise that are not found in those who are in the relationship, but instead emerge from the relationship itself. The meditations can be of great benefit to us, but when they are part of our relationship with nature, with the cosmos, a relationship informed by Aini, then something special and beautiful emerges from our relationship with nature and the cosmos, and we begin to blossom into the essence of who we each uniquely are. Perhaps I can give you an example. This is ineffable, but I will try to convey to you a sense of what I want to communicate. One morning I had gone to a canyon stream with some friends to engage in Andean meditations. When the meditations were over and we had completed the circle of Aini with Pachamama and the river, we sat and chatted for a while about our lives, the universe, and everything. But I found myself drifting away from the conversation. My consciousness began to expand beyond the confines of myself. I felt as if I was growing to include the stream and the trees around me, and there were birds that were flitting from tree to tree. I then became aware of myself sitting on the banks of the stream, and I was aware of much more expansive experience of me, and the thought arose in my mind, oh, there I am, as if I had been looking for myself for so long. Your experiences, actually my experiences too, may differ. But my point is that what happened was not an effect of the meditations we had engaged in that morning. It felt like it arose from the relationship between me and the nature and the cosmos, emerging at that moment. Before closing the topic of Aini, 
I would like to step briefly into the topic of the irony between you and me. I would also like to talk about the irony between us and the people of the Andes. For this path is not about us, you and me. It is about the big us, you and me and the Andean people and the Apus and Pachamama and Mama Cocha and Mama Tuta and others. First, the irony between you and me. This is a challenge for me to talk about, for whatever I say may come across as self-serving, but I would like to talk about it anyway. If you would like to give me something back for sharing the ending Cosmovision with you, you can buy my book, Details to Follow, or make a donation on my website or blog, again, Details to Follow. When I give workshops, I suggest that the participants give me a small donation as well. I would like to share a little about my experience with this INI, as it sheds light on how INI can work. I started on this path into the ending Cosmovision for selfish, or at least self-centered reasons. I was very depressed about having a life that seemed to have so little meaning and with not enough beauty in it. As I experienced this path, my heart made it clear to me that this path was going to be good for me, and it was. And after a while, it stopped being about my needs and started to be more about others and the cosmos, which is what you would expect from a path of heart. When I share with others in my culture how to explore this path, I don't do it for the money. I do it out of love and because it gives me a sense that in doing so, I am living a meaningful life. And what I find is that if I continually give to others without receiving sufficient irony back, if there's a lack of balance in that way, then I eventually burn out and I have to take a break, sometimes for a long while, turning my attention to other things until I've regained the desire to move on with this endeavor. When I receive irony back, however, and the give and take is balanced, I find myself instead energized by this work, rather than eventually feeling depleted. And that is how Aini works. Now I would like to move on to the Aini between our cultures and the people of the Andes. I give half of the Aini I receive, book royalties, workshop fees, and donations, to the people of the Andes, who have so open-heartedly shared their cosmovision with the West. This creates a huge, globe-spanning circle of irony between our two cultures. I think this is a beautiful thing. I feel that I ought to mention that I don't ask the people for receipts, so you just have to take my word for it that this is what I do. If you would like to donate to nonprofit organizations whose mission is to help the indigenous people of the High Andes, then I recommend two, Kenosa Spirit Keepers and the Heartwalk Foundation. The mission of Kenosa Spirit Keepers is to honor and preserve the integrity of indigenous wisdom and sacred cultural practices by providing cross-cultural exchanges, education, and community-building opportunities. I am the Vice President of Kenosa Spirit Keepers. The Heartwalk Foundation partners with indigenous communities in Peru on project projects that strengthen food security, education, health, and respect for traditional cultural practices. Links to both organizations can be found on the blog page that hosts this episode of the podcast. So, on this episode, I have covered intent and Aini. The third and final topic that I would like to delve more deeply into is Salka. S-A-L-K-A. Salka. Salka is a challenge for me to talk about for two reasons. The first one is that whenever my friends or I say the word Salka, 
Everyone else echoes back, Salka! That's hard for me to speak the term without that particular enthusiasm. The second challenge is that Salka! Okay, I'll stop that. Is the deepest term of them all. And the deeper they are, the more ineffable they are. Indeed, I have come to realize that Salka is deeper than the Indian Cosmovision. And that the Cosmovision is but one way to get in touch with our Salka. For several years, Don Americo had encouraged me to write a book about the Indian Cosmovision before I actually did so, but I had to wait until I was ready. It took me about 16 years of experientially exploring the Cosmovision before I felt able to write about it, as I wanted to make sure that what I shared came from my experiences rather than from parroting Don Americo or the Pacos. That is part of the beauty of this path to me, that when we explore the Indian Cosmovision, it is through our own connection with the cosmos. And rather than ending up as clones of Don Americo, we end up being more the essence of who we each are. For the past few years, America has been asking when I will stop writing about the ending cosmovision and turn to writing about Salka. I'm still not there, so I'll just do the best I can for now. I would like to begin by repeating the basics of Salka as I explained the term in episode one. Salka is a Quechua term, the language of the Andes. It can be translated as undomesticated energy. The dog has domesticated energy, while the wolf has Salka. The chicken has domesticated energy, while the condor has Salka. The sheep has domesticated energy, while the deer has Salka. Actually, all beings have Salka. It is just that in domesticated beings, the domestication is like a veneer through which the light of Salka has to shine. The biggest picture of what the Andean meditations do for us, of what we find when we explore the Andean cosmovision, is that we each get in touch with our Salka energy, the beautiful energy that exists outside the us of our ego, outside of the us that our society has shaped. There are people who live in the high Andes who are very Salka. You can see its light in their eyes. You can see the serenity in their faces. You can feel it inside yourself when they interact with you. Imagine being a young child living at 15,000 feet in the Andes. You live in your family's small stone house built of the material of the Pachamama. Such a house is known as a Wasi Tira, literally a house of the earth. The heart of the house is the kuncha, an oven made of earth that forms a hardened hollow dome of adobe, with an opening on the side for feeding wood into the fire, and a few openings on the top there just the right size to sit the pots. You awake in the morning to the warmth of the kuncha and the aroma of the soup that your mother is cooking for the family. Climbing out from under the llama skins, you prepare to take your family's alpacas and llamas up to the mountain to feed. You take along your waraka a woven sling that you use to throw rocks to the side of the herd to direct them where you want them to go and to ward off the pumas and foxes of the high Andes. As the first rays of the sun lick the frost from the mountainside, you slowly lead the herd up the mountain to 16,000 feet, where there is ichu grass upon which they can feed. You find a comfortable place to sit. A thousand feet below is your home, a little smoke coming out of the hole in the roof. Up here, however, all is sulka. Despite your being at 16,000 feet, the Andean peaks tower high above you. 
All you hear is the soft steps of the alpacas as they graze, and the wind coming down from the mountains. The air is clear, and the towering peaks, although they are miles away, seem almost close enough to touch. Below you, a condor glides down the valley, barely moving its wingtips to control its flight. You notice clouds gathering around the apus. Perhaps the apus will send rain in your direction, or the deadly thunder and lightning. As you sit looking at the apus, you can feel that they are as aware of you as you are of them. This is Salka. You are surrounded by Salka. And you are Salka too. In Peru, I have gazed out over cultivated fields on the side of mountains on slopes so steep that it's hard to even stand. These fields have been cultivated for hundreds or even thousands of years. It's hard to put this into words, but somehow the farmland feels as wild and natural as the national parks in the United States. The people who live there belong there. Their presence is as natural as that of the condors and the pumas and the wind that blows through the trees. We here in the modern Western world are heavily domesticated. This is not a bad thing. Our domestication allows us to operate within our society and to reap the benefits, as well as the deficits, of our technological advancements. Unless we want to live as hermits in a cave, we need to be able to operate in our society, within our society's consensus view of reality. It is just that we are so out of balance, we are so domesticated, Getting in touch with our Salka gets us in touch with so much more of all of who we are. The Andean meditations get us in touch with our Salka. Then we can choose to be domesticated when we go to the grocery store and to be Salka when we stand on the side of the mountain and open our arms to the stars in the dome of the night sky. Salka is like a wind that blows through consensus reality from beyond bringing us into contact with the great mystery and beauty of our existence. Our society knows this not, but my heart yearns for it. And when I encounter it, when I find it within myself or in others, my heart starts to sing a beautiful melody. Don Americo and his son Gaile Abar have founded the poetic Salka movement on the planet. It is not a political movement, or a social movement, or an economic movement. It is a poetic movement. There are no membership lists and no rules. Walk the path of heart into the Indian Cosmovision and you are a member. This is the end of Episode 5 of the podcast, The Indian Cosmovision. The podcast covers some of the material presented in my book, The Indian Cosmovision, available in both printed and electronic formats and which can be ordered through your local bookstore, as well as through Amazon and Barnes & Noble. The podcast is being made available so that those of you who want to explore the meditations can listen to an auditory walkthrough of the meditations while you are meditating. As I began to record the meditations, I realized that I also wanted to add some of the conceptual supporting material. Many more meditations and supportive conceptual information may be found in my book, the Andean Cosmovision, as well as for free in my blog. For more information on the book, my blog, and other supportive material, please visit my website at 
www.salkawind.com. That is Salka with a K, S-A-L-K-A, salkawind.com. In my blog and on my website, you can also find a donate button in case you would like to create a circle of Aini with me and with the people of Peru. More information on this is available on the website. This is Oakley Gordon. Thank you.